0: It's November
1: 23rd, 1889. And another remarkable event is about to be uncovered by Ariel, Rebecca, and Ali. The
2: Retrospectors. I went to a 1950s-themed diner last week, Grumpy's in South End Would highly recommend Try the Loaded Mustard. And I saw in there, alongside the statues of Elvis and the retro cigarette ads and the screen playing Gentlemen Prefer Blondes on a loop, a charming 1950s jukebox. And that is the sort of setting that I've always seen jukeboxes in. So much so... I assume they were invented in the era of the 45 RPM record, Mm -hmm. but no, it was today in history in 1889, what, (laughs) that the jukebox made its debut at the Palais Royal Saloon in San Francisco, although then it was called a nickel-in-the-slot player.
0: Yeah, I mean, the original name wasn't exactly designed to withstand inflation, it has to be said. (laughs) And it had been invented by a 44 year old telegraph operator turned inventor, once again, one of the 19th century's many inventors, Louis Glass and his partner, William S. Arnold. The reason that they debuted it at the saloon, you know, you might think, of course, now there's very naturally a connection between jukeboxes and bars, but the reason was that. Despite the grandiose name, it was just an ordinary neighbourhood bar. It happened to be a few doors down from Glass's workshop, which Uh, was convenient given that the machine was incredibly heavy, as well as the lead-lined oak case. It also contained a 25-pound sulfuric acid battery to provide the electricity because (laughs) people didn't have mains electricity in this area. It was very much in its infancy, so it needed to power itself as well. So you can imagine he really could only unveil this invention somewhere that was within staggering distance of his actual workshop.
1: And honestly, the thing that was unveiled looked so unlike what we imagined the jukebox to look like, you know, that thing that you saw in that 50s diner, that we just probably wouldn't have even recognised it. Exactly as you say, Rebecca, first of all, it's giant, but also it had four stethoscope-like tubes that were attached to this Edison Class M electric phonograph, and that was fitted inside an oak cabinet. And the tubes were operated individually, each activated by the insertion of a separate coin, meaning that four different listeners could then plug into the same song simultaneously. It wasn't the kind of, you know, you put your money in and it booms the music out on a sound system. It was like an individual iPod experience, but tethered to the wall because it was absolutely massive. (laughs) Yeah, with a hanky
2: hanging off it so you can wipe out your ear smagma. I mean, that's so disgusting.
1: (laughs) But Um, quite sort of surprisingly thoughtful. Yeah, I guess.
0: It doesn't seem like the most conducive invention to a social atmosphere, especially considering that what it was going up against was the existing automated machines, mm. which were, you had music boxes, obviously a fun novelty for the family parlour, but not really going to get a pub sing-along going, and player pianos, which are the, the self-playing pianos, and again, without yeah, the, the mm. without the words being sung, again, a little bit difficult to get, you get your sing-along going, do you know what I mean? People need the words to cue them in, they need to be able to listen to the original recording, and this kind of, I guess maybe one person could listen through the headphones and sing, and then else could sing along with them. And
2: in fact, the Pianola remained like the predominant way to share music with a group of people in a bar for decades after this, which is why we think of the jukebox as a thing from the 1950s, because they didn't perfect it for ages, because... Yes, now it seems slightly ridiculous to have interchangeable perforated rolls of paper mechanically rolled around by depressing the pedals. But as you were (laughs) saying, in an era before electricity and in the era of the pub sing-along where otherwise you'd have someone mechanically playing the piano anyway, that felt like an amazing novelty. Mm. Um, So I can totally see why that took off. And it was cheap as well to get the rolls of paper, whereas recorded sound was not cheap at this point. It was only one song on a wax cylinder that Mm. this machine was able to play.
1: It's surprising, though, that they did have this fitted headphone system... And you consider that the early phonographs were like, you know, they had a big trumpet built in for amplification. You know, that they were designed as a device that would play music for groups of people. So it must have been a kind of capitalist impulse that it's like it, we want each person to insert money separately and they get their own individual experience that they can share with no one else. One person who was not a fan of the device, though, was
2: Thomas Edison himself. He really felt strongly that the phonograph, one of the possible uses for it in the future might be music distribution. Mm. (laughs) But basically, it was a business device. It was a forerunner of the dictaphone. It was a communications uh, enabler. And, well, this quote from Edison, the coin in the slot device is calculated to injure the phonograph, in the opinion of those seeing it in that form, Mm. as it has the appearance of being nothing more than a mere toy. Like, he just saw this taking his invention, putting it in a bar as a real insult, actually, to what he'd created.
0: I mean, but have you listened to some of those early recordings? Like, a lot of them are people, like, doing really off-key, weird Irish dialect songs from the (laughs) vaudeville stage. Like, they don't inspire a huge amount of confidence in it. This is a medium, it has to be said. What I found surprising was how quick it was that multi-selection did come along. It came before Mm. amplification, in fact. So in 1906, the John Gable Manufacturing Company produced the Automatic Entertainer, which allowed the user to choose from up to 24 records, which would then be pumped out via a big old timey horn on Mm. the top. Mm -hmm. So there was natural amplification from that. And it wasn't until the 1920s that we would get the electric loudspeaker added.
2: Well, even before that there were people just taking the original machine and putting lots of them in a room that they called parlours. So there was one place in Buffalo, New York, that had 28 of the Edison machines. It just
0: looked like one of the old houses I would make on The Sims. (laughs) (laughs) And in this room, 28 jukeboxes. So you'd
2: walk around and you could put in... If you had 28 nickels, you could hear 28 different tunes in one room was the idea. And actually... Those rooms were popular in certain holiday resorts and became what were known as penny arcades, which became what we recognise as video game arcades. That all started from people making enough space to put enough oak-panelled early jukeboxes in a room together.
1: It must have been kind of the... 19th century version of the internet cafe you know where you it's notionally a public sort of meeting space where you can go and get your drinks and do all of that but also you're all having your own unique personal experience that you're sharing with no one at all which I suppose must be why ultimately these things gave way to the more sort of sociable machines that were to come. And part of the reason why we don't have at least the that very early machine and very much you know, in the way of records about it is because the saloon shut down a year after it had been opened and the building was destroyed in the massive 1906 earthquakes, which lit fires in San Francisco that destroyed 500 blocks of the city. There was this massive levelling. And to an extent, we had to take Glass's word for it that he had this great success in the spread of the device across the city. And his claim that he made $4,000, which by the way is like uh, $500, thousand dollars in today's money um you know this was a big claim that he was making at some conference where it you know it just couldn't be proven because the whole city was burnt to the ground
0: and in the 1930s the growth in popularity of the jukebox which at this point was still being called a nickel in the slot machine or whatever it was dented slightly by the depression people weren't as keen to throw away their nickels but Towards the end of the nineteen thirties, going into the war, and then after World War II, we're getting into the golden age of the jukebox. And this is also around the time the term first appears in the late nineteen thirties. Mm. Probably derives from juke or juke joint which was a southern slang term for a kind of a low down roadside bar, kind of place you'd go to drink and dance, and maybe, maybe you know, even
2: brothel, like it has maybe that connotation, even connotation. Yeah. Just the
0: kind of place where a jukebox would be popular, you know, not the kind of place a respectable musician would want to appear, but the kind of place where you'd want to dance to some loud music. They were particularly associated with african-american areas and for black americans the jukebox represented a particular kind of freedom it represented somewhere that they could hear what were called race records you know jazz and blues they were often banned from white run radio stations you know whereas white people could put the radio on and gather around and listen communally to music for black people that wasn't always an option so mm. the jukebox represented this freedom to hear what you wanted in a group with all of your friends mm.
2: yeah i'd never considered that element of it before reading into it Uh, In preparation for this episode, the idea that kind of in a pre-echo of podcasting in a way, you know, jukeboxes in their full heyday, local jukeboxes in your local bar, particularly if you're African-American, offer you as an artist the opportunity to circumnavigate the record company. Mm. Like no one's going to put your record on the radio so you can put it in your local bar and get everyone dancing to it. It never occurred to me as a way of
1: launching yourself, but people did that. It wasn't just the hits from the charts you could hear. I mean, it's staggering to think how long it took for people to be able to listen to music that wasn't either live music being played to them because they'd got to, gone to a concert, or music that they were creating themselves because they were they'd, they'd bought a guitar or you know whatever instrument to to do it in their own home. You know, this really was revolutionary. So again, it's surprising that it was this individual personal experience before you got to kind of the twenties and then thirties, and then in the forties, the introduction of wall boxes was really key to the ongoing kind of sociable nature of the jukebox because wall boxes allowed people to select the tune that they wanted to hear from their table or booth and then it, it would go to the, the sort of central jukebox and would be played to the whole restaurant or bar or whatever.
2: And crucially, kind of anonymously, like you yeah. could opt
1: in or out yeah.
2: of <laughs> yeah. telling everyone that it was your I'm choice. I'm doing the blobby song. That's- <laughs> yes, again. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Tomorrow. I lost friends whose interpretations of humanity's origins were thrown into serious doubt. Ditch the ads
1: and get a Sunday episode when you join Club Retrospectors. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, part of the ACAST Creator Network. Hi, this is
2: Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ.